0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash audioboom.
1: This week marked the third birthday of our film music podcast, Soundtracking, which is a milestone we're very proud to have reached. That we're still going is thanks in no small part to you and, of course, the guests who take half an hour or so out of their busy schedules to talk to us about their passion for all things Sonic. To mark the occasion, we've drawn together some of our favourite moments from the past year, which has featured many huge names from the world of cinema and television. Among the voices you'll hear are Bradley Cooper, M.I.A., Peter Jackson, M. Night Shyamalan, Thelma Schoonmaker, Barry Jenkins, Jordan Peele, Cliff Martinez, Keanu Reeves and Danny Boyle. So, without further ado, let's get cracking with actor, writer and director Paddy Considine, talking here about his love... Of horror movies
2: and I suppose The Exorcist was one that when I was a kid you see it was banned it was you couldn't see it so it became this cult film that you know you word would go around Winslow that such-and-such has got a copy of The Exorcist so eventually I watched it and I'd already formed this terror in my mind about that film and when I watched it it formed an even greater terror in me (laughs) and um, when I was older I come to really appreciate because the effects age you know special effects yeah. and things age but i really came to appreciate the writing the craftsmanship of of uh, freekins directing and the incredible performances because what's happening in that bed now could look pretty ridiculous but i still think it's far more effective than a lot of the the horror movies today it's almost like now we have all this cgi there's too many options yeah there's too many ways of doing things and you can pretty much do what you want and to me I don't think that's a great thing I think the limitations of what they had making the exorcist is what makes it still work for me today and the performances are absolutely fantastic in it so I grew up with those films and I, I was I've always been a fan of horror and Nightmare on Elm Street in particular I loved and I didn't understand what it was until I was older and it's the same with it with Pennywise the clown those films are about fear Those films are about the ego, the hungry ghost, and the more you feed it, the more elaborate it becomes. The greater it becomes, the greater a threat. But when you see through the illusion of fear, it dissipates, it becomes weak and ridiculous. And that's ultimately what we are. Those films are about the human condition more than anything else. Mm. They're about our perception of fear. And it's great for it too. When Nancy pulls Freddy out into consciousness and brings him into the real world, he's weak. You know, She Mm. turns her back and he just disappears. And that's where it should have ended. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and but I
2: think they're great metaphors. I think that's why they still have a power now.
1: And the music of those films as well is equally as important.
2: Yeah. Well, I love hearing in those stories that, that uh, Freakin tells about tubular bells, you know, about okay. struggling with the music for The Exorcist. Yeah. And then he hears of all things tubular bells. And I can't, I can't listen to tubular bells.
3: <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want
2: that in my head, you know, <laughs> at certain times of... Uh, of the night (laughs) and you think wow that's incredible those stories are just it feels like they're becoming very few and far between those opportunities Mm. for those beautiful accidents to happen My kids love I've got a daughter who's nine and she loves horror films and she loves horror characters the other week she met Robert England
1: oh wow you
2: know and she had all the claws on and the hat she had the stripy
1: jumper on. she had it all on, amazing yeah.
2: and people look like you know the kids watch this and I'm like she dissects it she breaks it down and, and she has a bit of an understanding beyond her years in some ways but I was on my um, you know iPod the other day and uh, they downloaded the Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack and Nancy's theme was on there, you know. It's so sort of electric and. <laughs> you know. Charles
1: Bernstein, isn't it? Yeah, yeah and you yeah. kind of
2: listen to it and go, this is kind of, on its own, it's kind of crazy. You wouldn't <laughs> equate yeah, yeah, this yeah. With, a, with a horror film.
4: Hey, Nancy! No running in the hallway.
3: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: loved by Patty considine that's ron nancy from charles burstein's very 80s score to a nightmare on elm street now mia e. is an artist who i've much admired since my days at radio one where i played her a lot i therefore couldn't have been happier to talk to her about the documentary on her life matangi maya mia e. Among the many things we covered was her love of Tamil films and the influence they had on her own music. Live
5: fast, die young bad girls do it well Live fast, die young bad girls do it well Live fast, die young bad girls do it well Live fast, die young bad girls do it well My chain hits my when I'm back
1: With the Tamil films. Was there? A, you know nothing about the Tamil film industry and the types of films that, that you'd watch and stuff. Was it a real marriage of those, you know, visuals and sound and soundtrack and, and music being ingrained with it as well?
5: Oh yeah. 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 I mean, most of the songs that I sample comes yeah. from my movie collections from my twenty-four hour <laughs> <laughs> binges. It does. Yeah, like all of those were made in that time period.
1: Can you remember any of the? the composers who were part of that sound. I mean, the
5: person that I sample in Bamboo Banger, Ile Raja. <laughs>
1: thinking about those films and that piece of music then you want to sample it. Yeah, definitely.
5: I I like a song and then, you know, I want to work with it. With his songs, it's like that. I still listen to them. You know, he's basically like the Beatles for us, right? You know, like how the Beatles achieved, like, the pinnacle of songwriting within the space of four years? Yeah. It was the same with Alejo Roger. He just, like, there was a moment when... He defined the entire existence for that sort of like a bunch of people in that part of the world. Mm. They dress like these songs, they walk like these songs, they talk like these songs. Like entire, you know, people were being born to these
6: songs. (laughs) குயிது மரசுக்குள்ளே பாட்டு கென்றும் பஞ்சம் இல்லே பாடத்தான் தவிலைத் தட்டு துள்ளிக்கிட்டு கவலை விட்டு கச்சைக்கட்டு
5: all these like 500 other bands yeah but they were the best at the bands it's like he was the only band <laughs> you know yeah. like when I say people were being born to his music like yeah there was generations of Indians being born to Ilya Raja songs because there was only Ilya Raja songs. <laughs> His only one until A.R.R.A.M.A. came, and A.R.A.M.A. only happened to come along because he was Ilai Raja's assistant. (laughs) (laughs) He was like really exposed to this guy for a long time, and he was like, fine, you know, and he broke out of it, and then he became that guy.
3: Aja Aja Jindeshami aneketalehe, Aja Zari Valeni Le Azuma Neketaneh Zayho Sayho Aja Aja Jindeshami Aneketanehe, Aja Zari Valeni Le Azuma Neketaneh
5: But the Hiller Raja songs were just like so important because he was the first musician in Indian music that was really comfortable with switching over to synthesizers, you know, so he took very classical music and really understood classical music and classical Indian structures. And then transferred it to this kind of you know machinery the machine music and that had never happened before Mm -hmm. and that was so revolutionary and then he also added sort of like western twists here and there and you know it was new every time
1: Appeal of composer Eli Raja. One of the most critically well received films of 2018 was A Star Is Born, starring Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper, who also produced and directed the film. I've got to say, Bradley was fantastic company when he joined me back in episode 109. In this extract, he explains the lengths he went to to find an authentic voice for the musician he plays in the film, Jackson Main. You come to form him, you know, in terms of what 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 Jackson would be.
7: It, it really was a process of investigation, you know, it, it, like on a very superficial level. Like I grew my beard out really long, and and there was like a moment where I was like, maybe it's like this, uh, you know, uh, Father John Misty yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And then I thought, like, and then then filming, I thought, well, it would just be the beard, like the whole thing <laughs> yeah. would be the beard. So thank God, I, <laughs> I trimmed the beard. But there was there there I, for about half a year. I had a beard that was very big, uh, and I thought that was going to be the guy. And uh, it's the beard guy. <laughs> it's the beard guy. Not that he's the beard guy, yeah. but I couldn't have pulled that off.
1: Yeah, I think a band of horses. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, that kind yeah, and even like hard. Stapleton
7: and you know, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: But you have you know you have great relationships with people both in the music industry and in the film world. That I imagine you, especially with this being your directorial debut, that you know you ask advice of.
7: Oh, I ask a million questions all the time. And uh, you're right. I wouldn't have been able to... To do that, pull this movie off. If 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 I did pull it off, without having you know great musicians open up their world just a little bit to me, mm-hmm. and uh, I spent time with uh, Noel Gallagher and asked him thousands of questions and watched him play. And sure, it, he's a
1: bad influence. Though,
7: he's a, though. but he was. I didn't listen to anything he said. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, what's wonderful about him is he'll tell you exactly what he thinks, yeah. and that's all you need. That's what you demand when you're trying to create something. Yeah. There's no, I mean, because it's going to get out there eventually. Yeah. So just tell me the truth. Uh, and Eddie Vedder was invaluable. I spent three days with him up in Seattle, and wow. he was. And I would uh, text him questions mm-hmm. all the time. And he actually was the inspiration about, because at first I t- I had another idea, because I wanted it to be like a prize fighter. What, what's the toll on one's body, mm-hmm. you know, this profession? And um, I was going in a different direction, and then it was through working with him that the tinnitus thing came about. And I thought, not that he, ha- he doesn't have tinnitus, but I thought, that it was it was just listening to him and then and then also reading about a lot of artists and and so if I hadn't have done that work I don't th- you know the, the the character would not be um, hopefully completely real. Did you
1: speak to him as well about score and soundtrack because Into the Wild is one of my favorite scores. Yeah, I,
7: I mean we talked about everything. I don't know. I mean that we certainly that came up, but. Um, that truck hard
1: son is just... Yeah, oh. it's
7: insane, dude. He's, he's you know, there's uh, there's very few people like him in the world, just as a human being.
1: When I walk beside her,
8: I am the better man. When I look to leave her, I always stagger back again. Once I built an ivory tower so I could worship from above. where I... I'm down to be set free, she took me in again. There's a, big, a big hard sun,
3: on the big
1: people. Hard sun. Oh, what a treat to play that by Eddie Vedder as discussed with the utterly charming Bradley Cooper. Damien Chazelle made his second appearance on Soundtrack and to discuss his Neil Armstrong biopic First Man. Damien seems incapable of making a bad film, while his composer Justin Hurwitz is similarly prolific when it comes to writing great scores. With this in mind, Damien and I wasted no time in getting into Justin's process on the film. Nice to see welcome back, <coughs> Damien thanks, Giselle, to Soundtracking. Congratulations on, on First Man. I was lucky enough to speak to you guys about it last night, and it's it's a beautiful film. It really is, emotionally charged. And the music, I don't know, there's there's real heart to the music, and it feels like there's a real kind of narrative to the music in itself, if that's a fair comment. Mm-hmm. Would you say? Yeah, yeah? Uh,
9: well, I mean, I, I, that was certainly the, um, the hope, you know. It, it's... Um, Justin and I, my, my composer, I mean, we, we, we um, spent a lot of time talking about what, what the feel of the music was going to be uh, in the film. You know, basically, as soon as we'd finished La La Land, we were kind of talking about, about this, and I, and I gave him early drafts of the script, and, mm-hmm. and, and he started um, experimenting with sounds. And then we really started in earnest the way we always do, which is uh, with you know, him sitting at a piano for months uh sending me piano demos and just kind of you know uh uh, trying to find uh the main melody yeah it does feel a little bit sometimes like searching in a vacuum until (laughs) until that happens but then once one you know once he landed on that um once we both kind of agreed okay that's it that's the melody to develop then then there's still obviously a lot of work to be done but there's at least a path
1: yeah How do you decide on, from those early stages of of sitting at the piano and him working out melodies to working out the instrumentation of those melodies? Because there's there's beautiful there's there's a harp, mm-hmm. is it a harp that kind of yeah. kind of comes in and out throughout the film? That's that's a, a kind of recurring theme and melody that you hear on several occasions. And what are the conversations that you have with him about what that ends up being in terms of the instrumentation of it?
9: I guess it depends. I'm remembering correctly. Uh, you know, here it sort of began with the main theme, you know, sort of being played on the piano, and 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 then and then we started talking about what, you know, what the basically the main sort of instrumental voice could yeah. be. And so I think actually before there was any talk of harp, there was talk of what could carry that main melody. You know, al- almost like a vocal line. Yeah. Um, we knew we wanted something that would have some kind of ability to bend and sustain notes. Um, Felt like it didn't want to be piano or something like that, and uh, and and around the same time, Ryan um, uh, found this track, "Lunar Rhapsody," that um, that is an old uh, uh, theremin and Orchestra track um, that uh, that Neil um, that Neil and Janet actually uh, loved, and that Neil played from space when he was in Apollo 11. Ah. obsessed with that track and Justin did as well and it became a little bit of a reference for us to use the theremin as essentially this kind of vocal line Mm. to sort of carry the melody that way and then to surround it with both orchestra and finally we started playing around with certain riff ideas because we knew I, I think I knew I wanted the moon landing to be sort of mainly scored by a kind of propulsive churning repeated motif. that sequence but uh, Justin I think really fell in love with with the possibilities of that riff and developing that riff as Mm -hmm. kind of a sub-theme to the movie and that finally wound up in Harp. So it it was sort of the circuitous path, but it's kind of how we wound up with, I'd say, two main compositions or two main melodies uh, that kind of are reprised throughout the film. And then, of course, it's about figuring out, okay what are the variations of those and what are the sort of in-between compositions that carry you from point A to point B and how do you orchestrate all of them?
1: Damien Chazelle on Justin Hurwitz's score for First Man. Another fine director composer team is Ben Wheatley and Clint Mansell, who collaborated on High Rise and joined me to discuss their latest project together, Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. The score and the sound of the film is really clever, what you've done with it. I think it's brilliant. I mean, I don't know what era it is, my, my history
10: is uh, awful. Shakespearean Elizabethan she- type of thing, yeah, wasn't it? You yeah. know, and that, that was something that Ben really wanted to, I suppose. The hangover from Coriolanus really to sort yeah. of yeah. underscore it with that type of feel. But
1: But still with your take on that.
10: I know as much about folk music as I <laughs> you know, probably know about this microphone, you know, <laughs> which is not a lot. But you know, our sort of age group has certain touchstones with that, you know, like like the Wicker Man or something, you know, mm-hmm. got that sort of pagan, folky, slightly odd. Python,
1: as well, it made me think of some bits of python. Some places, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. do you know what I mean? Is that well, I hope you do that? as, a compliment. as well, you know, I mean, it's it like, a compliment
10: there, you know, kids' shows when we were growing up would oh, be kind of funky. yeah. Like you know, yeah, it's, it's sort of a bit, bit off, you yeah. Know? You know, the musicians that we, we, we got to play it, I sort of um, lent towards people who had more of a, that in their arsenal, if you like, so that we could. Even though, yeah, it's it's probably going to be, you know, because it's written by me, it might probably be a certain type of way, but we'd still bring in a certain sort of authenticity to it that would support us, I suppose. You know, uh, it was a lot of fun. A lot of fun.
1: say to Clint you wanted for the music?
10: We had a bit of temp that we put
11: in initially which was, what was it, it was from Plansky. Macbeth, yeah, the mm. Polanski Macbeth which was the three
6: 30th wow. band. Band, yeah, yeah. band, yeah
10: That was basically to
11: put in where I wanted the cues. The comparison between the bits of music is completely mm. is completely different. But it was just going, it's here and he goes to here. And then it was also some Eno stuff as well, wasn't it? Yeah, there was So yeah, it was kind yeah. of there was there was the kind of Elizabethan stuff and then there was a bit of ambient seventies stuff. So mm-hmm. it kind of but then to be done Eno to be done as Elizabethan was the plan, wasn't it? Yeah. So it kind of feels yeah. so it
10: all joins together as one.
1: Ben Wheatley and Clint Mansell on the latter's modern-day twist on the Elizabethan oeuvre with his score for Happy New Year, Colin Burstead. British director Steve McQueen is not only supremely talented, but also a very lovely fellow to spend a bit of time with. Steve joined me to discuss his film Widows, a remake of the 1980s ITV drama. As well as featuring a brand new tune by none other than Shadi, Steve was also kind enough to treat us to a wonderful cue by Nina Simone. Can we talk a little bit about the contemporary tracks, or Needle Drops, as they get referred yeah, to? It's yeah. Nina Simone track in there. Yeah, oh, my God. Oh, uh, gorgeous. Is that an easy thing for you to decide upon? Are those personal choices? Are they, yeah, do you talk very about personal them?
12: choices. So, Nina Simone track.
1: Wild as the Wind.
12: Yeah, wild as the Wind. Um, I first heard that as a Bowie track, in fact. I heard the Bowie version first. Yeah. And I loved it, because when he says, go, you feel the coldness. And you, know, you know that kind of autumn day where you... And you can blow out the, the smoke in it <laughs> you feel it in your teeth. It's, it's gorgeous how he sort of enunciate. I say, oh, yeah, just, yeah. it's not that, but it's another word, I can't yeah. remember it was. But how he it, it comes out of his mouth and you feel the cold.
1: Yeah.
12: And it's that kind of you you know what's how gorgeous that you can feel the sensitivity of the, the sensation when people someone is singing. <laughs> we the value version but so i didn't actually know that the new simone version then i had new smone version I thought, oh my goodness gracious <laughs> so gorgeous and that piano play i mean she, a lot of people talk about the singing mm-hmm. but the piano playing is absolutely up there yeah I mean, it's absolutely incredible so the emotion of that yeah it's then the and loss and it's just i mean it, hey you know
3: mm. can i can
12: tell you it, it, please listen to this song after you've listened to this podcast it's, it's, it's incredible oh my
8: to me, for we're creatures of the wind.
1: can we talk about Shadi? oh yes <laughs> and the big unknown mm. how did this come about
12: well i called her i said look I think, yeah, hi, dear mate. That was <laughs> that. <Jack and> Steve, <laughs> yeah. how you doing? <laughs> He's, uh, not knowing you at all. There's
13: that smile again. Cold. <laughs> <laughs>
12: um, so I, I got in contact with Sade and I was interested in her sort of doing uh, a, a song for, for the movie. Luckily, she knew the series very well and she had some attachment to the series, um, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we got together. I mean, it was very. De- again, she, no, she's not. She doesn't come out often.
1: Yeah, eight years since she released some-
12: a. Yeah, yeah, she's very. Yeah, she's very Greta Garber of pop. I call her. <laughs> <laughs> she is like that. Um, Thanks
1: for getting her out.
12: Yeah, and then <laughs> she was engaged with the piece from day one. We talked a lot about what I was interested in yeah. and what she, you know, what she wanted, what she was thinking about. Um, a lot, a lot, a lot. A couple, two phone calls, and then we met in person. And um, we spoke, we spoke, 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 we spoke a lot. And then, so it, was the worst, it was like actually working with an actress. It really was. Yeah. Um, and she'd get it, but she feel it. You know, she has to feel it. It's almost like, it takes a long time for her to do anything. I mean, it reminds me of my friend, of an artist friend of mine. Of, it was, it, um, his name's called David Hammons. And he said to me, I don't shit on command. So, <laughs> so you know, it happens when it happens. So, of course, um, you know, so that's what, that, there's this timing thing. Yeah. And when she came to London the second time, she started telling me these lyrics, just speaking these lyrics, and like, oh my god, this is amazing. And slowly she sort of did a dem- little bit of a demo, sent me, and, and a little bit more, and things changed a little bit. And then I went to her house to hear the final track, and it was absolutely amazing. Wow. Um, yeah, she's out, out there in the country somewhere, and it was just absolutely amazing. Again. For her to give anything to anyone to, uh, at any time, it means it, she gives a lot. She, mm-hmm. it's, for her, it's, 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 it's like you know, it's like a small face it's all or nothing. And it's that, it's that, it's on the track. It's... And I think it's one of, I think it's, um, well, I might even think, I don't, it's just one of the amazing songs mm-hmm. um, that she's ever done, absolutely. But also, in recent sort of, I just think it's, it's heavy. Yeah. And beautiful and gorgeous and hopeful. And yeah, it's just so dark. great to
1: hear her. Yeah, it's so great to hear mm-hmm. her.
8: No one surrender to this heart tonight, I know the sun.
1: The Big Unknown by Shadi, especially written for Steve McQueen's Widows. One of my favourite interviews of the year was definitely Christopher McQuarrie and Lauren Balfe. This was in no small part because they sat with me of their own accord outside the promotional circuit, which meant we had more time to discuss Lauren's score for Mission Impossible Fallout and that theme.
14: At the end, I actually sent Lalo the theme oh arrangement. Oh, my God, really? Because we got the same agent. So oh, I yeah. sent it to her. I got no reply. Like a month goes on and still no reply. And I'm thinking, God, maybe he just hates it. It must really <laughs> be really bad. So then I kind of thought, well, do I, when do I start asking this question? Firstly, does he check emails? Yeah. I don't know if he does or anything. Mm-hmm. I get told, yes, he does. He, he checks his emails regularly. I'm like, oh, God. Great. So then I'm doing a, a radio interview in Colombia, and there's a translator, and they're saying, oh, what does uh, Maestro think about your score? And I said, I don't know. I sent him it, but he, he never got back to me. So the interview finished. They called back 10 minutes later. Saying, uh, can you go on air now? I said, yes. They said, uh, we've just spoken to Maestro. Oh <laughs> no way. way. Lalo, <laughs> live in, uh, in uh, Los Angeles and the translator's doing it. So then they're playing him li- and he's listening to it live, <laughs> like three or four tracks of the so the our end version that we did and then our opening. Uh, Opening credit piece, and then he's listening to it, and then he's talking about. And he's
15: hearing it for the first time. Yeah, he was hearing it for the first time. So
14: there's maybe a lot of politeness was said. You know what he, he said something. He said it's such an honour to have this piece of music that has been throughout his journey, yeah. still being uh, remembered by people. And I think that it, it it's kind of it's a it, because people write themes left, right, and centre, and it gets mm. forgotten about. Yeah. But this is just now this is part part of folklore now. Yeah. yeah. That, oh yeah. That you know it's people it's on people's phones. Yes. You know, it's commercials, and it's it's, it's far more well-known. Anyway, he was happy. OK, good. So.
1: Cool. <laughs> good. do I love that. But now
15: I can open that email he sent me. <laughs> I've been afraid to even look at it. But that was your r-
14: idea to do, do the snares, to do... Um,
15: oh, the, the, the snares. Uh, yes, the, the Mission... military
14: version of the plot <coughs> theme, which, the, which yes. you know, is is the second hero, you know, famous theme for Mission Impossible, yeah. which kind of gets forgotten about.
2: The plot. The plot. So, yes.
15: but another thing about the theme is there are those two theme elements. There's the the plot theme and the main theme. Mm -hmm. And the main theme lends itself to heightened and almost, you know, the the more triumphant moments. It's a celebration. And this movie didn't have many of those. Like when Ethan, normally what you do is when Ethan grabs onto the the rope under the helicopter you play the mission mm. impossible theme you remind yes. saying this is a mission impossible movie but it's not a it's not the right moment it's important to us to convey that the story is far from over that the situation is incredibly dire and you made the choice to take the plot theme and to play it where you would yep. normally you put
1: you
14: took yes.
15: theme B and played it where you would yeah. the I mean, law I've says got, theme got, A got, yes. <laughs>
14: I think I didn't... And you see, that's the problem of not understanding the rules. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but that's exactly what you want. They want yes. the rules thrown out the window. And Absolutely. you want it to be yours. And you want it to be your interpretation and this collaboration between I, you all. But I
14: think, though, that even the famous theme, there's so much in it that I think less is more sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we did a lot with just the first three notes. Mm-hmm. That, you know, And that was it. Because as soon as you do the next one, it then becomes triumphant and it's yeah. changing the whole tone.
1: Christopher McQuarrie and Lorne Balfe on the use of Lalo Schifrin's classic theme in Mission Impossible Fallout. With the release of young adult action-adventure Mortal Engines, I was lucky enough to spend time with Peter Jackson and his longtime producer and screenwriter, Philippa Boynes. As well as discussing their new film, we had an illuminating chat about the Lord of the Rings trilogy, as scored by Howard Shore. you back just for a second to how you felt about or what you were wanted how you wanted music to be within The Lord of the Rings and those and how that started in that relationship with Howard and what the conversations were and, and you know it was the start of something that at at that point I'm sure you didn't know where it was gonna go and it was going to lead in my. those films then the Hobbit films but and working with him throughout all of that.
16: Well, it, there was there was really only one thing that we wanted with the music. What um, well, we hoped that we would get with the Lord of the Rings is, is um, we wanted some very strong themes because it was a series of films and it was characters, ongoing stories. We wanted to you know to establish like a theme for um, the Hobbits or you know that would be in the first film and then when you you know it can be used in the second or the third film. idea of continuing themes, which is really what, what John Williams has has done very successfully and his, you know, Star Wars series and things, you just, you know, you... You know where you are in the story and who you're with, you know, you know, because of the music is is taking you there. So that's what that's that's certainly was our idea going in before we even knew who would ask the compose it. And then we had storyboards um, of for the movie and some animatics. And what you always do with the storyboards and the animatics is you make up a little sort of a fake little film and you sort of you film the storyboards and you cut them together, like you know, two or three seconds per storyboard. And you just cut it like a film, you try to make it seem like it 's um, you can watch a movie in a sort of very crude form and what we do part of that is we, is we get soundtrack albums and we try to put music to, to it as well because you know if you 're wanting it to replicate what a, a crude version of what the film might be like, the music 's a big part of it. so we were trying all sorts of different music because we were just it was just from soundtracks that existed and for some weird reason, and we didn 't we would never have guessed it uh, the music that was always working best with our Animatics was Howard Shaw music mm-hmm. from *The Fly*, from *Silence of the Lambs*, um, from from one or two other movies that did and, yeah. I, and, and I would have never guessed it. I would have thought that's you know *The Fly* working working with *The Lord of the Rings*, *The Lord of the Rings* animatics and storyboard yeah. that you'd never think. And so we, we sort of got to the point with the end of that we sort of thought oh, this this stuff that we're getting off of off of Howard Shaw's and this is a guy that I've never met him before, never spoken to him. Uh ah, stuff we're getting off Howard Shaw's movies is really working fantastically well. So maybe we should ask Howard if he wants to do the do the <laughs> yeah, movie. And that, that was literally exactly wow. exactly how it, how it happened.
1: Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's true. An, that's brilliant. There's obviously an emotion within his music that resonated with something, his, something. He, yeah. No, he is. Yeah. He 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 is
17: incredibly emotional. I think he's
16: but he's also got—he's also had a dark emotion which suited the Lord of the Rings. It's a melancholy. It's yeah. a sort of—it's not a rah rah rah. You know, no. in the way that the way that say you know a John Williams sort of sort of theme uh, might might be. It's a—it's a, its a melancholy sadness to his music, even the sort of more of the cheerful stuff.
5: I remember my very first piece that I, w- that I heard and I actually cried was when Fran played me let there be a little more light and then that, that moment when he steps forward and you hear that and you and reveal story, on yeah. Doom. one of those moments where it's like this is the most perfect combination of someone who truly understands mm-hmm. the fabric of the world that's holding right. And and so we, we
16: so what we what happened I remember now is we is we before we started shooting there's all this uh, what I talked about happened obviously before we started shooting the movie doing the storyboards and the music and Howard Shaw themes and stuff Howard Shaw soundtracks and so we um we we contacted him and had a phone call with him and he was very interested in being involved. Um, and he jumped on a plane and came down to New Zealand. And we were still, you know, some weeks away from shooting. And he, uh, re- we rented him a house just down the road. And he said, look, he's going to stay for a couple of weeks. He wants to meet us and and, and, um, and learn as much as he can about the film and visit sets that were being built at the time and absorb it all. And um, he asked for a piano to be put into the room, into the house that we hired from. We did. And then after a few days... Uh, of him arriving he called us up and he said do you want to come round for a cup of tea and i've got some stuff to play and and we hadn't even started shooting the movie yet and he played um like the hobbit the theme for the hobbits um which is almost identical to what it is in the film and he had and he he had one or two others he was actually he was starting to write the themes before we even shot a single (laughs) frame of film that's amazing
1: Peter Jackson and Philippa Boynes on Howard Shore's work on the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Yorgos Lanthimos had huge success with The Favourite, which won stack loads of awards and much critical acclaim. As ever, Yorgos was quick to praise the team who worked with him on the film, not least his sound designer, Johnny Byrne. As such, we thought we'd play you a package we included in that episode in which Johnny discusses his art.
11: I'm Johnny Byrne, I'm the sound designer and re recording mixer on this film. So, on a film set, the only thing that really gets recorded is the dialogue spoken. And ideally, you want it free of noise and clear in diction.
18: Did you just look at me?
1: Did you? Look at me! Look at me! How dare you! Close your eyes!
11: So, you have this dense dialogue. So, you once were a lady and now you are nothing a bit of scullery scraps. How very sad. I'm still the lady out. And you silence it whilst you experiment with the director and your team on how to build the whole sound world around it. And how you choose to do that is key to the whole filmic experience. Usually a period film just needs sound to be supporting the dramatic action. It's not monsters or science fiction. It's a period of time where we know what things sounded like. So you work within that and develop a credible sound language to help steer the story that the audience can believe.
5: I will not betray my mistress's
0: trust. Good. And let's
11: not forget Yorgos' exceedingly high standards of perfection, which meant a very big part of this process was to go to the palace ourselves and discover and record how it sounds. when you move around these rooms you know they all happen for real it's kind of genuinely how that place sounds when you haven't had to tape loads of rubber to everything because it's a film set and you need the clean dialogue what we tried to do was be incredibly truthful but use it in a way that expresses the emotion of the film even if sometimes we rely on things maybe a little outside to do that so we did it for real and we left there with a real insight and a massive library of sound thank you your majesty
1: Johnny Byrne on the sound design for The Favourite. Now, I very much enjoyed M. Night Shyamalan's lo-fi take on the superhero genre, which concluded with this year's Glass. But I have to say, one of the most enjoyable moments during my conversation with him focused on his distaste for temp music. it seems for you it's really important that your composer whoever that is 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 involved early on yeah it it has to be that case because so many of the directors that we speak to sometimes don't have that luxury where it is a case of they've edited the film with temp music and they bring the composer in yeah which can also be a real bugbear for the composer because it's kind of like can you make me something that sounds a bit like this yes and you know so it's a lovely position to be in but it feels like it's part of the creative process for you that yeah, you need to be
4: there. Yeah, the temp music is so deadly. The the idea of putting in temp music because if it works great, you're fucked. <laughs> That's somebody else's score. Yeah. Now you're going to copy somebody else's score because now <laughs> your movie won't work unless you copy the the Hans Zimmer score. What? <laughs> so good luck with that. It was just think of it as a relationship, honey. I want you to wear this dress from this other girl. Yeah. I've been dating this other girl, and she's been wearing this dress, and it's been going really, really well. So, honey, can you wear your hair like this and wear this dress? And if you could talk the way she is. She, she laughs kind of like this. That would be really great because it's going to go really well if we do that.
8: That's a great way
1: to Jeez.
4: think Temporary <laughs> girlfriend or temporary wife proxy wife <laughs> till, you, till the real wife comes.
1: M. Night Shyamalan with a truly brilliant analogy regarding temp. I'm not going to lie, I might be a little bit in love with Barry Jenkins, but come on, who wouldn't be? Barry followed up his Oscar success with Moonlight with the quite simply beautiful If Bale Street Could Talk. Both films were scored by two-time guest on the show, Nicholas Bratel, and both feature a number of expertly chosen needle drops. When you were writing the screenplay well, do you were you thinking about. I mean, I'm assuming you, you knew you wanted to work with Nicholas again on, on this film, but thinking about when you're writing the script about where music. Not replace dialogue, but like Mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier. Are you even thinking about, I don't need script here, I don't need words here. I think that that Nicholas could create something that will say more than... than... I I
19: gotta say, not with score. One of the things I like about working uh, with Nick is that Nick comes last. And what what I mean by last is, there's the writer, then there's the director, then there's the actors and the cinematographer. Yeah. I think Nick can't do what he does without the actors. Yeah. And so at the script stage, I have no idea who's going to be in the film. Yeah. You know, if Kiki Lane wasn't the lead in this film, Nicholas Bertel's score would be different. It just would be. Amazing. You know, that's how it works. Yeah. And so no, I, I very rarely are. Uh, I'm re- very rarely imagining score at the script stage. The needle drops though. Those I am thinking of. You yeah. Know, in In Moonlight, when Black walks to the jukebox and plays uh, Hello Stranger. Yeah. That is in the screenplay.
15: My
8: baby Hello stranger It seems so good to see you
3: back again How long has it been? It seems like a mighty long time Chubop,
8: Seems like a mighty long time Oh, I'm so glad
3: You stopped by to say hello to me Remember, that's the way it used to be, It seems like
8: a mighty long time. Chibop, chibop, my baby. Ooh. It seems like a
19: mighty long time. In the John Coltrane track, I think it's I Wish I Knew uh-huh. um, in this film, I knew that when Fonny drops the needle, that is what he's playing. I knew it. I knew it. But the score, no, the score can't become what it is without the actors.
1: that is that coming from you then Uh, that's coming from me yeah yeah now
19: now, now our music supervisor is amazing Mm -hmm. is amazing you know when we had this Al Green track um uh, actually what was it was it Al Green what was the track you know it's so good I don't even I've remember.
1: Got a, I've got a list. I've, I've got...
19: No, 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 I'm thinking of things that aren't in the film. Oh, aren't in the film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, all right, so, okay. So, 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 we'll so <laughs> this we This is inside info. So here info go. So we go. So we had two Al Greens yeah. and two Nina Simones. Oh, Nina wow. Two Nina Simones. Okay,
1: we got that's all I ask and, in the uh, film. And, yeah. and
19: the, that's all I ask mm-hmm. is amazing. Mm-hmm. That was always going to be there. Yeah. And what you do is you go, you know what? I'm going to pay for that one. And I'm going to pay whatever I have to pay for that one because that's a moment where we actually have voiceover Mm -hmm. and we realize we don't need the voiceover because Nina is doing all the talking that we will ever need and I think Mr. Baldwin will be okay with us replacing his words with hers.
8: Don't try to blow out the
19: sound for me
8: baby I'm not asking for what I know can't be of girl. All that I ask is a smile or two And nothing in this world would be too good for you
19: But the first time when Tish tells uh, her father that she's pregnant, mm. there was a Nina Simone song playing there. It was, um, I won't get in trouble with this, it was Mr. Bojangles.
8: I knew a man Bojangles and he danced for you one worn out shoes with silver hair a ragged shirt and baggy pants the old soft shoes. he jumped so Then he lightly touched the down I met him in a cell in New Orleans I was Down now. He looked at me to be the eyes of age As he spoke His leg is dead. Mr. Bow Jaggers, Mr. Bow Jaggers, Mr. Bow Jaggers,
19: it was amazing. <laughs> But our music supervisor is so great. He took the energy of that and he's like, I think this song, nobody's heard of it. I think it'll work for you. And it's this track, Mr. of a Dream, which is beautiful. Yeah. I never heard it before. I'd never heard of it. You know, I know you guys are big on the northern sound here, so maybe. Yeah, no, I I
1: hadn't heard of it, but it's absolutely perfect. It's perfect. It's perfect. I
8: saw you standing there. The mist of a dream
3: ah. I wonder
8: why, why, why
1: that you were not there the inimitable Barty Jenkins. It so happens that I met Joe Cornish to discuss The Kid Who Would Be King on John Williams' birthday. Given how much of a fan I know Joe is, we got right into the score for E.T., though that section of the interview soon took something of an unexpected turn. It's quite nice as well that we're chatting on the birthday of John Williams.
18: Is it the birthday of John Williams? It is the birthday of John Williams
1: today, which is kind of nice. So I I was listening to E.T. on the way up on the play. What a soundtrack. Yeah, just talking about melody. That was when you said you know you, you love melody and weirdly that was kind of I was like well oh, I want to talk to about John Williams and that yes. was like the first one that popped in not Star Wars weirdly which I would no. have thought would have been the first one that came to my head but
18: those are re- obviously the most indelible themes certainly mm. for for my generation Superman Raiders of the Lost Ark Star Wars yeah E.T. themes you're humming as soon as you walk out of the cinema <laughs> yeah. particularly, there's a track called Toys yeah. that plays when um, Elliot is showing E.T. his toys, the Star Wars figures, and w- sometimes what's interesting about musical cues is they accompany one particular narrative strand, so that cue is really about E.T. and him looking at this boy who's explaining his society in this very naive way, but here's this ancient old wise alien watching the boy and there's a little bit of pity in the music and sort of naivety and innocence and it's incredibly moving because it's um for me anyway because it's it just brings out something incredibly earnest and yearning in 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 the scene it's very very beautiful Also in Williams, Williams' soundtracks, you have those amazing moments of apotheosis, right? When yeah. everything in the story converges. So when Indiana Jones rises up, on, you think he's dead, but then he climbs onto the back of the submarine yeah. and pumps his fist. <laughs> Think of an or when the bicycles fly in ET, yeah. e. you know, when all the sort of narrative strands that the director and writer have set up converge and sort of meet at this perfect moment and his theme kicks in <laughs> almost like an engine starting up. And it's not even it's not even Turbo blasting, boost. it's just it's, <laughs> it's like a your favorite steam train is starting up and it's a And you're like, oh yes, 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 yes it's so good I mean the ending of E.T. in particular is a symphony I mean there's very very minimal dialogue for the last six seven minutes of that movie and you try watching it with the sound down and it ain't very cutty
1: and it's almost like a short film love story I think mm. as well almost kind of like a, almost like a silent movie six minute silent movie almost of, of a love story mm. of these kind of two the characters. bit I
18: don't like is when Wish Upon a Star comes in oh no that's Close Encounters <laughs> yeah. isn't it that's the end of Close Encounters yeah I don't like that bit it doesn't need
1: it what was it like working with Spielberg though I mean you know considering that this is someone that you've you know, I'm not sure I'd be able to actually say anything to his face isn't it? You know you're I mean? so used to seeing
18: with people that famous you're so used to just <laughs> being watching them passively yeah. that actually making your body making your face speak <laughs> and you're just like go on carry on talking I'm looking at you you're off the telly uh, Oh, I've got what well, you can see me and you can hear what I'm saying uh, so it's a bit like that for a bit but really you're in, you know, well, okay. So with the first meeting was in a place called Giant Studios in Santa Monica. Mm-hmm. And we, Edgar and I had been brought in to rewrite Stephen Moffat's screenplay because it was a bit too long and Moffat was leaving to be the showrunner on Doctor Who. Yeah. So I was asked by Edgar if I wanted to uh, to work on it. I said, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I bought an economy ticket to Los Angeles. I sat, I'm very tall, so I was very cramped in this Seat on Virgin Atlantic, and I read, reread all the Tintin books, so I was completely up to speed.
1: Didn't watch any films? No, I was
18: just t- absolutely, t-tin', absolutely, Tintin studying yeah. on the plane over. And then, and then I eventually walked into this meeting room with Peter Jackson, Steven Spielberg, Edgar, and me, and a couple of the producers. Jesus. And I didn't say much, so they were talking about the script, and Edgar suddenly said, Joe's got an idea of how to compress the story. Joe, <laughs> tell him <them> your idea. <laughs> And it was like, da-da-da! <laughs> and so I pitched this idea, and the idea was to actually combine the... The original screenplay had two villains, Sakharin and Rackham. Yeah. So the pirate and the, the collector. And my idea was to make them descendants and to cast the same actor. By doing that, you could compress a bunch of the yeah. exposition. And I remember Peter Jackson going, yeah, that's, that's quite good. That's quite a good idea that's a new zealand accent i was doing there and i was like oh my god and then that was it really and then you just have to kind of get get on with it yeah and you know every day i assumed i would be fired i mean i was just waiting for someone to go joe you're not really you're a radio uh presenter and i'm not sure you should be here so it's been great but (laughs) bye-bye But it, that never happened.
1: Right through to the end.
18: Well, yeah, right through to the second week of filming. Okay. And, and then, uh, because I have to say that I am I was a small cog in a massive machine, you know. I was one of quite a few writers on that film. Spielberg contributed. Peter Jackson cons- contributed. Fran Walsh contributed. Yeah. Edgar contributed massively. Moffat contributed massively. You know, it's a huge collaborative. But there's some stuff of mine in there. Bits and bobs. Yeah. You know, which is pretty cool.
1: Amazing. Have you got a lady singing in your bath?
18: I'd like to. That's the le- that's. Um, the
1: lady in the bath. <laughs>
18: that's the lady in the bath. It's like the lady in the water. She's she going to
1: come out with a sword? in a No, it's, like the, in what's your film? The, um, it's the
18: shape of water. I've got a fish girlfriend <laughs> in there.
1: With a sword.
18: Yeah, with a sword. It's sort of kinky.
1: Um, Don't you can't hear her, can you? You can hear her, can't you? Or is it just me? No, I can hear <laughs> okay. her. It's my
18: fish girlfriend. We've established this. You can't now expect her to go away. We've summoned her.
1: Joe Cornish with a cameo from his fish girlfriend on John Williams and, well, other things. It's not understating things to say that Thelma Schoonmaker has worked on some of the most influential, memorable and downright brilliant films ever made. That's because she is Martin Scorsese's go-to editor. The stories she has to tell are, well, spellbinding, including this one about Raging Bull. What's been wonderful is that, you know, there are some films, some Marty films, there's a composer attached. There are some that there aren't. There are some where it's um, existing music. There's a bit of Rolling Stones, and it's quite funny. I had the pleasure of interviewing Mick Jagger, and I said to him, I said, tell me, when Martin is making a film, does he still have to <laughs> ask permission to use a Rolling Stones track? And he went, of course he does, <laughs> which I loved. But the use of that particular track, the uh, Cavalleria Busticana Yeah, the sets a tone it immediately takes you somewhere you know
20: Marty would hear that he said through the windows of the tenement building he was living in and this Italian-American sort of ghetto very strongly Sicilian and he would hear opera and things coming through the windows that's why in Raging Bull the the level of the music is much lower when you get to something like Goodfellas it's right up front rock you know yeah but he's dealing with other music that he was hearing as he was growing up and that piece, why he understood that that piece was going to be the soul of the movie, that is Jake LaMotta's theme. interesting is they kept trying the studio didn't want to pay for it it's Um, always the
1: same with music you know the music costs so much
20: money oh absolutely and they kept giving us another version try this version how about this version how about that version how about that version and marty and i would listen to them and he would say nope i want that one and they would say but we can't afford it and try this one and try they tried forever and but he just stuck to his guns
1: Can we talk a little bit about that process of that film and when Marty brought you in? I mean, I want to know why it was black and white, Mm -hmm. first of all, why he decided... Michael Powell. There we go. That's why. (laughs) I'll I'll
20: tell you why. I had worked on Marty's first feature film, Uh, Who's That Knocking? And then he went to Hollywood to bust in, and he wanted me to come and work with him then. He was still teaching me to edit. You know, Marty Mm -hmm. taught me everything I know. I knew nothing about editing. And so he wanted me to come and work with him, but the union would not allow me to work because they said she has to start three years as an apprentice, five years as an assistant, and then she can become an editor, and I refused to do that. I was already, you know, I had edited the one film with him. I had been nominated for an Oscar for Woodstock. I was not going to go work as an apprentice. So I did other things for almost 10 years on documentaries and things yes and then on Raging Bull he called me and he said listen we got you in the union Erwin Winkler the producer of that movie just forced me into the union so then I could work with him again yeah. so that's why I started right away yeah. I had never worked on a big Hollywood movie we were on a Hollywood lot um, you know big stages and fight mm-hmm. sequences and all these things I had two assistants I never I always put my <laughs> own trims away I never had an assistant before and Watching that movie get made, the dailies, I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off De Niro when I was looking at the dailies, and I could see immediately it was going to be an astounding movie. But the reason it's made in black and white is that when Scorsese finally found Michael Powell and Emmerich, because they had influenced him so much, and nobody knew where they were. Nobody wrote articles about them. Mm-hmm. They said, why is it we don't know, and how did two people make a movie? And so he came to the Edinburgh Film Festival where he got an award for Alice, and they said to him, who do you want to give you the award? And he said, Michael Powell. And they said, who? Nobody knew who he was anymore.
3: Here, oh my I mean, it
20: was unthinkable. So Marty then came to London, and he said, does anybody know where Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger are? <laughs> And finally, Michael Kaplan, who was doing publicity for 2001 for yeah. Kubrick, said, I know where he is. So he set up a lunch, and Marty started asking Michael all these questions. How did you do this? And how does, this shot is so incredible. This blah, blah. And Michael Powell writes in his autobiography, the blood started to run in my veins again. And he was destitute. He had no money at that point. He hadn't made film in years. It was tragic, you know, tragic. Mm-hmm. And Marty just brought it all back. Along with Kevin Goff Yates at the British Film Institute, Ian Christie, who's going to be with me at the awards, and Bertrand Tavernier, the French film director who wrote one of the only good reviews of Peeping Tom. So they had all been trying, and then Marty was able, with his, you know, uh, as a big director in America, to bring michael t- over to america Emmerich wasn't able to come with him enter peeping tom in the new york film festival mm-hmm. uh get it distributed again and the whole thing began to come alive again i got off the track now where were we we were no we were
1: just about oh we, the we, black, we, and yeah, okay. black and white yeah black so <laughs> and white yeah
20: when he brought michael to america they were preparing to do raging bull and de niro had been training for two years as a fighter and uh, marty was going to the uh, gym where he was training and designing the choreography of the fights as he watched Bob. And so my husband wanted to be shown where Mean Streets had been made uh, because he he thought Mean Streets was a a masterpiece. He Mm -hmm. said, why isn't it being run every day in New York somewhere? (laughs) Um, And he said, I want to see where you made it. So Marty was taking him around, and then he took him to the gym. And they were looking at the, the stuff, and Michael said, you know, there's something wrong with the red gloves that Bob is wearing. And Marty said, my God, you know what? I always saw fights in black and white, I'm gonna make the movie in black and white.
1: Thelma Schoonmaker on the brilliance of Martin Scorsese, who would not be the filmmaker he is without her editing skills. Now we've already heard about Paddy Considine's love of horror films and now we're gonna hear from, well, a gentleman who is redefining the genre, Get Out and Us director, Jordan Peele. A bigger budget for contemporary tracks on this film than Get Out. Oh, yeah. I know there Could was this. There was.
21: A <laughs> we got some. We got some classics in there. Are you kidding me?
1: <laughs> it's the way that you've used. Uh, I got five on it from Luna's. Is just, it's inspired. <laughs> and one of my favourite scenes in the film is the, is the dance yeah, towards the end and yeah. the remix of that track. Are those in the script? Is that in the script? That particular track because there's quite a few. There's a Beach Boys track which is genius, and that's the thing I love is you just throw in this lightness every now and again yeah. with things, and there's, you know, there's audible laughter in the, the, the in the theatre watching it at certain yeah. points as well. It's brilliant, and the music can do that sometimes. Yeah. Um, uh, fuck the police again! Mm-hmm. Oh my god, it's brilliant.
21: Thank <laughs> such
1: you. Such a great moment in the but film. I was
21: worried that you know I'm pulling out <laughs> such iconic, you know, I'm not. I'm not going for deep cuts here. These are like top so top 50 songs of all time um, and I'm trying to change the context of them forever, you know. So really <laughs> I am I'm, I'm glad people are going with me on them. I I do I do uh, you know, I, I I ended with those because they they did just work. So um, so uh, yes, thank you.
8: Fuck the police coming straight from the underground. A young nigga got it back To kill a minority. Fuck that shit, cuz I ain't the one. For a punk motherfucker with a badge and a gun to be beaten on. And thrown in jail, we can go toe to toe in the middle of a sale. Fucking with me, cuz I'm a teenager. With a little bit of gold and a pager. Searching my car, looking for the product. Thinking every nigga is selling narcotics. Fuck the police.
1: Please. But clever in terms of the lunar track of it, of it coming mm. in at a different points, and then at that specific scene towards the end, where mm-hmm. it's it's we it's orchestrated. It. Yeah, and it's kind of orchestrated really into for a specific reason.
21: Um, the, so the 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 script initially, uh, you know, we sort of build towards this. This is without giving anything away. We build towards a bit of a, f- a flashback of this moment where the character had a dance, a ballet performance, and. In the earlier iteration of the script, she talks about this pas de deux she did the, from the Nutcracker. So in the script, it's Tchaikovsky's, one of the pas de deux mm-hmm. uh, at the end of that story. And, um, you know, in looking, you know, just sort of peel back the layers a little bit and show you how the we make the sausage. Why, I don't know why I'm <laughs> going into food metaphor. Um, the, um, the Tchaikovsky version just didn't work for me when we first uh, edited together the first cut. And so... That's when we got to this idea of deconstructing I got five on it as uh, something that the audience didn't know they needed.
1: Jordan Peele, on a couple of the needle drops in his brilliant doppelganger horror, Us. Now, one of the biggest cinematic events of the year was undoubtedly Avengers Endgame, which saw the Russo brothers return to soundtracking. After a little burst of the traffic tune which opens the movie, we'll hear Joe and Anthony talk about composer Alan Silvestri, and in exciting news, I just went to interview Alan in his hotel room today for our podcast. Dun, dun 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 sorry Give us see something to make us
3: look
8: happy do take us out of this glue. sing a song play guitar it's not me. You are the one who can make it so But doing that, you break out in tears. Please don't be sad if it was a straight line you had
1: The wonderful thing we talked about the last time was working with Alan Sylvester on the score, and about how you know you asked him for um, for sweets and things for, for different characters, and Thanos suite sweet to kind of and it, it helped so many ways both for you guys, but also for the the actors and stuff as well by letting them hear that kind of thing as well. There's another beautiful piece of music in the this even in this sh- in this short piece that I saw today. There's so much that it's kind of informed me this wonderful piece of score whilst Iron Man is recording a message, which we've seen a little bit Mm -hmm. of in in the trailer sort of thing. then as he sleeps there's another kind of piece and it just is absolutely stunning it's a yeah, gorgeous, it's gorgeous but yep. it's very different to what we've heard before and like you say mm-hmm. you want every movie to be a different experience and i wondered whether with alan that relates to the music as well in terms of this is a different film they're they're 100
22: the i mean he took it a completely different approach when you're dealing with movies like this the trap you can fall into with uh, movies that that are aligned this closely all, all, first of all, Marvel movies are serialized, but in particular, Infinity War and Endgame are, are, um, have you know, a very close proximity to one another, not only in the time that they're released, but in you know, the way that the, uh, uh, the movies interact with one another. The only way to, to distinguish films like that is through, uh, or, or two of the ways you can do that is through point of view and uh, tone. Hmm. And um, and music plays a huge part in expressing point of view, uh, and it also plays an enormous part in expressing tone. I think the point of view on Infinity War was that the film was told from Thanos' point of view, and the score is driven by Thanos' mission in the movie. Obviously, it's complemented by moments like Thor's mission and his attempt to uh, build the axe to stop Thanos, but some of the biggest, uh, most dramatic moments of music in that film are Thanos's. this movie is not told from Thanos' point of view, and so the music has shifted point of view, and the tone of this film is distinct from Infinity War, so that has also shifted. So, I just don't think there was a corollary between the two movies, and it was obviously much better for him to just reset and help us distinguish this as its own entity.
1: That's amazing. I would have assumed that there would have been kind of, you know, that not everything was there already sort of thing, but I, I, I think it's wonderful that it's got its own journey it's not relying on that previous film. yeah and it, ha- yeah. it
22: has to I mean I, I, to a certain extent there are obviously this is a movie based on 21 previous films and 11 different franchises wow. and, you know so uh, there are, you know there are moments that uh, the thematics mm. uh, uh, can uh, be intertwined from the past yeah just in terms of you know uh, uh, character themes. But even then, you still have to create a fresh interpretation that services the pre, you know the, the present story.
1: Brothers on the legend that is Alan Silvestri soon to be a guest on this show. Speaking of legends we were honoured to be joined by Keanu Reeves and John Wick director Chad Stahelski back in episode 142. The pair met on The Matrix on which Chad worked as a stuntman and coordinator and it would have been remiss of me not to ask them about the Wachowskis via some reflections on the joys of Wick as scored by Tyler Bates. it's kind of like there's more put on John Wick you know in terms of <laughs> there there's, is. there's there's this <laughs> kind no of idea. This okay more happen. people more weapons sort of thing as well to say you look like you're having fun that's I
9: am having fun right.
1: <laughs> that's brilliant. no
9: I mean my gosh what a what an extraordinary opportunity I mean to I love the character I love the world I love Chad's vision the characters I'm a fan of John Wick and so for me to have the opportunity to run up a dune in a suit or <laughs> all of these fight sequences or, you know, the fighting for your one's life, for love.
23: I mean, gosh, come on. It's, it's, it's really. I think people fun. keep
4: asking us why we go back. You know, the John Wick, why don't you go do that? It's honestly, I think most of John, it's Keanu and I sitting with a notebook Gun. what do you love about movies? I mean, what other yeah. project lets us be so collaborative? It's I like mean, a toy
1: box. It's, it I mean, is.
4: literally, Kami is like, so, you know, we start at the beginning. It's like, okay, what are you good at? Make a list. This is what we're doing. It's like, John, look at a horse. John, look <laughs> in a suit in a desert.
1: <laughs> and you get to have a fight.
4: Chads with ninjas yeah. on motorcycles. Yeah, nin- yeah
1: that's motorcycles. what I was just about Dogs. to say. Like, in your element. Doing. Yeah. Absolutely loving that. But I
4: think was right. Like, we just make stuff that we want to see, that we like to see. Yeah. yeah. And hope for the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's well,
1: I one. remember I actually chatted to you for the first film and at the end of the interview I was like, are there going to be more? And you're like, well, I don't know if any, hopefully people are going to go and see it. Here we are on, on film three and very much set up for four as well. Hopefully you're hopefully, silently nodding.
23: Yeah. We'll see. Hopefully <laughs> the audience will like I it. I just that wanted to have actually? a holiday
1: first though. <laughs> it's kind of like go back to Casablanca and just take a little bit of time out for Sure. Yeah, exactly. Can I talk a little bit just about the Matrix before we go because that's where you guys met and I've heard you say that if you guys hadn't met on that film and, and been part of that film John Wick probably wouldn't be here sort of thing
3: I think yeah, that's fair to that's say true. Yeah, that's yeah. True.
1: yeah and it was I kind of watched back some stuff from from the, the first film actually and in terms of music as well and, and there was just some incredible scenes where the the gun scene where the, the, the kind of pillars are getting mm, below the smithereens lobby. and that propeller heads tracks. That's an amazing example mm. of, of how music is just...
4: Wachowski. <laughs> we still bow down. I know, but We're it living. starts with that
9: hammer sound, right? Mm-hmm. When Neo and Trinity watch, are walking watch. into the building.
4: Ching, with the footsteps. Yep. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> that movie still holds up and still gives me chills. One of my favorite all-time films. When was the last time you watched it? literally 2
12: weeks ago
1: amazing keanu
12: um from start to finish probably over 10 years
1: whoa oh you should give yourself the luxury of watching it again cuz it's it's a good movie it's a, it's just, the guy yeah. who plays neo is great <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's it's a great film
12: Remove any metallic items you're carrying, keys, boost change.
3: Holy shit! Back up!
2: Stand back up!
1: Such a a kind of forward-thinking film in terms of of the way that it it kind of used music in those scenes of action and, you know, using a combination of score and needle drops and stuff so perfectly as well. It's great.
23: I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect movie.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It's a really good... I mean, it kind of is, to be honest.
9: Yeah, I mean, it's... I mean, what they did with the genre
7: and philosophy,
9: the... The entertainment the music the sound the action the cinema technologically with visual effects synthesizing this all together for
4: an experience it has not been done that often to that level what other film last 20 years then i mean think about every movie that looks like it since yeah color uh, framing
1: and even if you hear certain tracks like that Cup to death that rob dugan track the first thing i think about is the matrix you know it's not about seeing that track played live or having an experience with that track it's about that film that's That's kind of the power of that Mm -hmm. synergy of those two things i think is a great example of it Reeves and Chad Stahelski sending shivers down the spine with their recollections of *The Matrix*. One of my favourite films of the year is *Booksmart*, which saw the directorial debut of the extremely talented actor, writer, and producer Olivia Wilde. *Booksmart* is awash with fantastic needle drops, but given the film's limited budget, Olivia wrote to the artists she wanted to feature, including James Murphy of LCD Sound System. <laughs> No approach to most people then about, yeah.
17: I believe in a personal approach to every part of the process (laughs) and everything, but specifically with filmmaking, like it is in the end, a group of people gathering to just tell a story, Mm -hmm. and you you can't let formality or bureaucracy get in the way of what is just a creative exchange of ideas. Mm -hmm. So keeping the humanity of it and the kind of equality that I think is necessary to allow people to feel valued. I think unfortunately in a lot of film sets, there is a necessary hierarchy that allows for efficiency when making a film. Mm-hmm. But what it does is create this distance between departments that I think gets in the way, particularly mm-hmm. between the cast and the crew. I mean, I, I've been on several sets where no one ever introduced me to the camera operators. And I'd say like, this is a person who's like one foot from my face yeah. when I'm emoting and trying to be vulnerable. Like, you, know, you think about theater when it's yes. just such a close-knit group of people. And there's such a shared trust. And then film sets are weirdly isolated. I mean, everyone's weirdly isolated from each other. There's something kind of sterile about the experience and I don't really know where it came from, but it must be broken through in order to achieve anything (laughs) great, I think. So. Sounds like you did it on this. Well, we use music. (laughs) We use music, honestly. Like I played music all the time. What'd you play? I played a lot of hip hop, especially because we were shooting a lot of nights. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing like four weeks straight of nights, you just need to keep everyone awake. <laughs> and I wanted to keep everyone. There was a kind of like gutsiness and and a, a kind of boldness to the attitude of the movie that I was going mm-hmm. for. And I just I wanted to keep everyone kind of deep in their I don't know. There's like a like a strength, a kind of like gangster attitude towards yeah. the story. Uh-huh. Even though it has emotional moments and, in the end, it's supposed to be funny and make you laugh, I just wanted to keep everyone kind of, like, feeling kind of bold and gutsy, (laughs) and keeping everyone kind of moving and grooving to the same gutsy (laughs) rhythms. And so I used, I mean, I played a lot of Kendrick Lamar.
8: Nobody pray for me. It been a day for me. Yeah, yeah remember syrup sandwiches and crime allowances finessing on them with some counterfeits but now I'm counting this parmesan with my accounting lives in fact I'm in this Goosey say with my Sit, Holla, down. Holla, little. Holla, little. sit down. Hold Be on Sit down.
17: actually a lot of Lizzo who was new to a lot of people at that point and I was excited I was like may I present you with your new favorite artist <laughs> yeah I um, love you have in the film as well it's great. Yeah. yeah I mean exactly yeah. like to have Lizzo on the soundtrack with Santi Gold and Kaylee 47 and Likey Lee as well. uh, yes yeah. that cover is just my so favorite great. <laughs>
8: you say, boy? You're trying to play court like a game boy? Hit my phone, boy. Is your homeboy? Are you a lone boy? Come get me, dome boy. Got a boy with degrees, a boy in the streets, a boy on his knees. He a man in the sheets. Sheesh, it's all Greek to me. Got this boy speaking Spanish. I right? my puppy. Baby, I don't need you. I just wanna freak you. I heard you a freak too. What's two plus two?
1: Lizzo, which is one of the many corkers on the soundtrack to Olivia Wilde's Booksmart. Asif Kapadia is a documentary maker of The First Order. Having explored the lives of Ayrton Senna and Amy Winehouse, he turned his attentions to another tragic hero, Diego Maradona. It's fair to say he likes the party, which Asif decided to reflect with a cue accompanying a montage of Diego's early life, DeLorean Dynamite by Todd Terje. a bit more in when you start the film brilliantly with this high energy it's a Todd Terzzi track Yeah. it's awesome and I'm, I'm in my seat and I'm dancing and I'm, I'm kind of like whoa where are we going what are we doing sort of thing but I want to come great choice
24: brilliant editor Chris King who, who who is a genius editor and really amazing with music and you know we've made quite a few films together yeah. now so we that, that opening is, is fantastic but you know God, we had some struggles to Did get you? that opening together because we had, you know, at one point in a longer version of the film, that opening title sequence was 45 minutes of the film. It was that like this huge arc, a huge act, the mm-hmm. first act, essentially, of Diego's life before he got to Naples. Yeah. And the film's just too long. Like with all of the films I've made, we always have these long cuts and yeah. you like it's great, but it's just not. In this case, it was really like we're struggling. And so we did a massive change, and then it was like, well, how are we going to throw the audience in? We just get chucked into the madness and chaos of Diego Maradona's life, and we whiz through time with this track. (laughs) The honest truth is right up to the final mix we were undecided how to open the film. Wow. first time in my life really where we were in the mix at Twickenham Studios with the team and we didn't have a lot of time to mix the whole film, mm-hmm. thinking there were six reels, say there's six or seven reels. It's still done yeah. in the old-fashioned way where you really say 20 minutes. yeah a screen time. The first reel, the opening of the first reel, we probably had a week to do the whole thing. And a whole day and a half or something it must have gone on the opening reel, where we had one cue, which is a very emotional cue, and we had a Todd Jersey cue now that we went with. And I had to watch both and then say, well, let's carry on and do the rest of the movie. And then I want to go back and view the beginning. Yeah. And in the end, we went, our instincts was to go mm-hmm. with this one. Depending on your age, it's a great, cool, funky track, or it's a bit cheesy. You know, some of the younger kids on the crew didn't grow up with this kind of music and they just thought it was a bit cheesy and I was like well you know the older (laughs) lot were like this is a great track (laughs) you crazy kids you know but then you realise that's Diego Maradona's life dancing going to clubs listening to that kind of music and it felt right I'm glad everyone loves it it goes down really well it gets the film going you know it's like the action car scene in French Connection or Italian job or something but it was so interesting how hard it was to make that call
1: but it's such an important part like you say you have to get the audience immediately
24: and because of the amount of time we whiz through yeah. where you're kind of dragging the audience along and then we slow down when we arrive in Naples. So it's fun. Yeah. And, and I, I think we made the right call. Yeah, and I everyone do. says it, that we made the right call. But, you know, films are so complicated and tricky yeah. that along the way it doesn't seem obvious. Yeah. And at the ending, if you do the right thing and it works and everyone goes, of course it's
1: not. Gut reaction. There we go. <laughs> Dynamite by Todd Terje is featured in an opening sequence of Asif Kapadia's Diego Maradona. A man who comes up an awful lot on this podcast is composer Cliff Martinez. So it was an absolute thrill for me to receive an invitation to his home studio in Topanga Canyon, California. Amongst the things we discussed were his repeat collaborations with former guests on the show, Nicholas Winding Refn and Steven Soderbergh. Cliff worked with Steven on Sex Lies and Videotape, Traffic, and Contagion from which this cue comes.
23: your memories of traffic that was really difficult i wrote a lot of terrible music for traffic before i wrote anything that was good how do you know if something's terrible Stephen usually says so he'll come over and say oh that's that's great Uh, what movie is that for
8: (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Uh,
23: and i think one of the big challenges was um steven uses a temporary music differently than most people most people want you to kind of imitate Mm -hmm. to some degree or another what's in the temp score some element of it some people are are more attached to the temp music than others steven has 0.0 attachment to the temp music (laughs) but he puts it in there to give you some inspiration yeah contagion for example he put in um uh, Battle of Algiers, okay, an yeah. older Ennio Marconi yeah. film. And there's not much in Contagion that resembles that, that. Yeah. And I couldn't write like that if I wanted to. put in a whole bunch of John Williams, which is like, so Stephen, you really picked the wrong composer if that's <laughs> wow. what you want. He goes, well, I don't want that. It's just <laughs> it's just there to inspire you. So Traffic that's had a lot of stuff that was really um, kind of not what I do. Yeah. And it was extreme, minimal stuff. It was like, uh, there'd be like a three-minute scene of, of one note. <laughs> and I go, okay, well, I guess he wants something super stark. And I got to think of how do you make one note compelling for three minutes? So I knew he wanted something stark and minimalistic, yeah. which which is what it was. But how to make music that that, that is that naked uh, be interesting and engaging and dramatic when it needed to be was a bit of a challenge. So, the films that where it's more about um, I guess sound design mm. uh, than it is about composition are a bigger challenge because when you're experimenting with things there's not a lot of correlation between successful results and hours spent and calories burned you can you can work really really hard hours on end and come up with like terrible music and and I did but eventually it it got really good I thought it was a very cool score and kind of the one that has a direct connection i think to sex lives and videotape Mm. it was a very soderberghian styled score
1: Composer Cliff Martinez on the scoring process for Traffic. It's hard to imagine two finer gentlemen to spend time shooting the breeze with than Richard Curtis and Danny Boyle. They joined me a month or so ago to discuss Yesterday, which imagines a world where almost everyone has forgotten the Beatles. In this extract, we discuss the role of composer Daniel Pemberton and the difficulties of dovetailing his score with all of those incredible songs. What I think is wonderful about it is the way that the songs have been kind of reimagined in a way in terms of they're the songs that you love and you know with the lyrics that you know and you love but but they've been reworked to suit you know the performance of how it's done within the narrative of the film and daniel pemberton who you've worked with before we've spoken to him on the on the show um and he's talked very highly of working with you on steve jobs and the like but why was daniel the right person to to come on and work on this film That's around, very
6: basically? interesting approaching a composer and saying, would you come along and write the incidental music between 17 Beatles masterpieces? (laughs) And he said, at first he said, you've got to be kidding. I mean, it's just like, it's the guillotine for any composer That He said, if it's any good, nobody will notice, and if it's bad, I'll just be slagged off for being so inferior to the Beatles. But I managed to persuade him to do it. That's very similar, I think.
10: He and certainly dresses like a character he's from Yellow Submarine,
6: or from or from Sergeant Pepper's, or <laughs> yeah. something yeah. like that. It's just like nuts. He's a and mad
1: scientist, isn't he? Yes, it's fantastic. Yes.
6: it's fantastic, isn't it? And he's a real melody guy as well. And so we encouraged him to. And his re- no, this was his reaction: was I should use the original instruments. So we sought out wherever he could the 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 old moogs and and and, and the pianos at Abbey Road that he could use, and he began to write Mm. straight away. And I like them to write, not to the film, just write. So I always encourage them to just go off and we talk, they read the script, they meet Richard, and then they go off and write. And then it's curious how much of that music you actually end up using, rather than being prescriptive for a particular scene.
1: It's kind of seamless, and but I love the way that there are kind of nods to almost like chord sequences and things that are synonymous with Beatles and things like that that are just really subtly kind of used as well. But I can't, I can't imagine how 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 hard it was to navigate that, you know, in for him. Of, yeah, yeah,
6: very tough, I think. There's a whole dictionary of chords that they have. As a musician, he knows. As a knowledgeable musician, he knows about the seven, the B7 or something, or whatever chord it is that they, that they introduced Hard Day's Night with, yeah. which is the impossible yeah. chord. Yeah. It can't be played by a human being, apparently. <laughs> it's, it's full of all this kind of like mythology about what they use, and of course, he, he inhabited that and used elements of it to, to invoke them, and yet actually, so it complements their music, yeah. and yet it also adds what we needed in the drama to emphasise things. It's
3: not- of has the first and worst...
1: Danny Boyle and Richard Curtis on Daniel Pemberton's score for yesterday. Our last highlight from our third year of soundtracking comes from the delightful screenwriter Emma Forrest, who made her directorial debut with bittersweet comedy-drama Untogether. She had some absolutely brilliant stories about the music in her film, which you'll hear after this track from Talk Talk's Spirit of Eden, the album that inspired Robin Foster's score. And those those other
13: tracks, they were all in the script then? They were all in the script. Um, There were definitely, we were really lucky as well because we had a music supervisor called Tiffany Anders Mm -hmm. who, when things were too expensive and there were a few things that were, I feel like I am fairly knowledgeable about music but she definitely knew things you know on the scale of well if you like this but you can't afford this have you listened to this she was great and um it wasn't until after I'd hired Tiffany Anders that I found out she's the daughter of Alison Anders who wrote and directed Gas Food Lodging which is one of my favorite touchstone movies well this is
1: all like serendipity it's it's all 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 over this stuff is kind of incredible yeah
13: it really is and um she also Tiffany She really made things easy for us because near the very, very start, when I said I wanted to use Shiny Happy People by R.E.M., Michael Stipe spread the word, loved the script and loved the cast and gave it to us for such a small amount of money. God bless Michael Stipe. That everyone else thereafter, when they were asking for decent amounts of money, we were like, we can't give you more than we're giving R.E.M. Amazing. you know and i think i think they gave it to us for like $2500 wow. something crazy <laughs>
1: Are you know they're in a they're in a position where they're you know the idea of their music being used in a in a different artistic Mm, manner mm, mm. is is a wonderful thing because it's someone else's interpretation of that music relating to a character or storyline and stuff. The idea, I mean, we've had so many stories of people on the show about the ridiculous amounts of money that people ask for tracks. Todd Phillips, the legendary one that we remember, is Todd Phillips wanting to use a Guns N' Roses track and they wanted a million for it. And he just went, fuck you, Axl Rose yeah. kind of thing and use yeah. something else. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, it's it's encouraged artistic form, encourage artistic creativity, you know, rather than kind of just trying to cash in on it.
13: The, the uh, Look, uh, uh, this film is perfect for your podcast. We have so many soundtrack stories. I mean, like, I had to fight really hard to get the Susie and the Banshees song because reading the synopsis of the movie and the stuff about the rabbi... They said, no, you can't have it. And I was like, really? Does she re-? Like, it's got these really idiosyncratic female leads as she read it. Yeah. Turns out they thought that it was an evangelical movie. Oh, wow. Like, oh, a, wow. like one of those weird Christian, you know, like Bible movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, can you explain to Susie that it's not? And yeah. then we got it. <laughs> with Shining Happy People by R.E.M. because originally in the script, and what I should say is that it's two people having sex to the song that they have decided would be the most difficult <laughs> song to have sex, sex to. to. So what I had written, are you ready? Yeah. <laughs> it was Money for Nothing by Dire Straits.
3: <laughs> 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 and
13: I said to our music supervisor, I was like, Mark Knopfler's going to love this. <laughs> He's going to find it hilarious. And we got a letter back saying, under no circumstances, you cannot use this song. He didn't think it was funny. Like but that. Michael Stipe did think yeah. it was funny. Great. Yeah.
1: Amazing. <laughs> That's so, so great. on Mark Knopfler's sense of humour failure rounding off the soundtracking special to celebrate our third birthday. My huge thanks to everyone who's taken the time to talk to us over the past year and of course to you for listening and your continued support. You can find all these interviews in full via edithbowman.com or your preferred podcast provider. My website is also the place you can find dedicated Spotify playlists for each show featuring the music that we play in its entirety in the order it appears. Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and do keep spreading the word if you like what you hear. So how are we going to kick off year four? Well, with none other than one of the kings of using music in movies, Mr. Quentin Tarantino. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then.
0: Go to shopify.com slash audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. shopify.com slash audioboom.
4: Let's talk about MediCal. You have a choice and Melina makes it easy. So let's talk about making your life easier. About extra help to manage your health. Nobody knows Medi-Cal better than Melina. Visit meetmelinaca.com. Let's talk today.